During his first term in office, President Widodo promised to return Indonesia to its maritime roots and establish the country as a maritime power. Some may wonder though, how did the world's largest archipelagic state lose its maritime roots to begin with? Widodo is now in his second term and he appears to have abandoned his maritime vision. What does this mean for Indonesia and what does it mean for the region? This comes at a time where we continue to see encroachment by Chinese vessels into Indonesian waters and even challenging Indonesian authorities. Are these just random fishing vessels wandering into Indonesian territory? Or is this a strategic move by Beijing as part of a wider long-term goal? I discuss these important maritime issues, territorial disputes with China, how Widodo's plan to move the nation's capital might impact the armed forces, and much more with Dr. Evan Laksmana, a political scientist and senior researcher at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, here in Jakarta. He's one of the most informed when it comes to the Indonesian military and security. Dr. Evan, Thank you for joining us today in the studio. Thank you. If I may start with maritime. Sure. In the run-up to the 2014 election, President Widodo, or candidate Widodo at the time, campaigned heavily on returning Indonesia to its maritime roots. And bring back Indonesia's maritime expertise and capabilities. There was a lot of hype during the campaign and into his you know, first year or so on this policy. And the policy was giving sort of a fancy name. It was uh, the Global Maritime Fulcrum or GMF. On that point, though, I wonder, I want to get into this a little bit later, but what comes to mind is, you know, how did Indonesia deviate from its maritime roots and being its the world's largest archipelago? But I think that's fascinating because we're talking about how a president in 2014 is pushing Indonesia to go back to its maritime roots. And it's sort of, you know, it's the world's largest archipelago. So it's kind of sort of a contradiction there. The GMF was intended to be a grand vision and strategy, included both foreign and domestic policy elements. It was based on seven pillars, uh, maritime defense, security, law enforcement, uh, safety at sea, uh, maritime and human resources, economy infrastructure, maritime culture, and among many others. The president even established a coordinating ministry for maritime affairs. And I think that you said once that this is not the first time that that was happened. It was 1955, correct? Mm. There was a coordinating ministry for maritime back then? It wasn't called the coordinating ministry. I think there was a maritime council type situation. Uh, this was around the time when we started thinking about UNCLOS and all that. But yeah, I think going back to your first point about the contradictions in us trying to come back to this maritime roots, we can talk about that more later on, but I think the short answer is because the arrival of authoritarian rule under Suhardo, I think, domesticated everything else. Um, so internal, internal right, focus. It's all about internal security. And to be fair, uh, historically, uh, that's been the case when it comes to uh, military operations from 1945 up until the end of the Aceh War in 2005. The majority of military operations, about 70%, have always been internal, whether it's insurgencies, 
terrorism, riots, you name it. So the majority have always been internal security. So from that standpoint, it's a push and pull between the requirements of the day-to-day -day operations on the military and security side versus what is you know, an ideal long-term geostrategic or geopolitical outlook, which is maritime-based. But again, the priorities of the new order sort of took over everything else. And even the uh, doctrine of, of the Navy was in some ways domesticated, that the naval doctrine included elements about law enforcement, for example, about maritime culture potential. These are efforts to get the Navy to engage with local communities and local businesses and, and local political actors. Uh, back in the New Order days. And that has left a legacy where I think the Navy and to some extent the Air Force is still trying to get out of. Mm -hmm. um, and Heavy focus on, on the Army. Right, right. And I think this is an ongoing process. We're not there yet, but I think it's an ongoing process. And this is why I think uh, with Jokowi's uh, platform, I think it should be noted that the GMF idea it was not a document that was sort of well-researched and well-developed over the years. It was essentially a campaign platform. In fact, if I remember correctly, it was decided over breakfast a few weeks before the first presidential debate with Prabowo. And, you know, it made sense. Jokowi was essentially a local official who rose through the ranks, uh, while Prabowo was a Jakarta player. He had a military background. So having more uh, of a geostrategic outlook uh, really distinguishes Jokowi uh, from Prabowo, uh, which at that point, given his military background, it was surprising that he didn't have a much larger yeah. geopolitical vision for Indonesia. And he just expect us to believe that I'm a military guy, trust me. Yeah. Well, this is a campaign. Yeah. We need more than trust, right? And then after Jokowi was, uh, was elected, I think there was a moment, maybe the first one or two years, where I think there was a genuine drive and energy across the ministries that this is the first time we have a big vision and we feel like it's about time we figure out stuff like, you know, how much of our GDP comes from the maritime industry? How do we ensure that the projection continues to increase on the fishery sector? How do we link the protection of the fishery sector with Coast Guard development, with maritime development? So for the first uh, one or two years, I think these kinds of conversations are normal. And if you go to all kinds of seminars from the government, you will see their ability of the bureaucracy, I mean, to, to sort of attach a global maritime volcrum to every event, improving finance accountability to strengthen global maritime volcrum, you know. So they would like attach these these terms to everything they do. But that's, you know, it's, it's partially bureaucratic, but it's also partially a genuine sense of optimism, I think, across the bureaucracy. But then I think a lot of things happen along the way. Jokowi had, had other priorities. I think after the first one or two years, I don't think he woke up every morning thinking, how am I gonna improve global maritime volcrum yeah. today? Yeah. So yeah. I think because he didn't personally, I think, handheld a lot of these, of these processes and all that, I think what you have is essentially different agencies interpreting what does it mean to implement the global maritime fulcrum in their own way. And this is where mm -hmm. there's a huge decline in terms of the optimism, yeah. there's a huge decline in terms of the overall outlook, and even the, the national uh, sea policy that was issued through a presidential regulation in 2017 could not um, get passed. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, its, its rise and fall was, was pretty dramatic and, and quick, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, I mean, despite all the, the hype and attention to it, I think it fell far short than mm. expectations. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that I think around a little over 80% of Indonesian territory is ocean. Uh, so it would be a very important policy to have. And correct me if I'm wrong, but to this point, Indonesia doesn't have a properly functioning well, Coast Guard? it's not that we don't have a Coast Guard. We have multiple versions of a Coast Guard. And it starts from one sort of big structural problem, which is there is an overlapping in terms of laws and regulations that around yeah. the maritime sector that essentially gives about 12 different agencies participation mm -hmm. and role in maritime governance. Which can be very confusing who's, who's right, coordinating exactly. and who's leading and, it. And within that 12, about five or six actually have uh, patrolling assets because the 12 includes like customs and, and enforcement all the way down to Bakamla, which is the maritime security agency. And now sort of the official version of our Coast Guard. Now within the five or six agencies, you have the Marine Police, you have the Department of Transportations, a sea and coast guard you have uh, bakamla you have the navy which still keeps its law enforcement role so among these uh, different agencies and with jokowi's first term you have the task force 115 that was created by susi um yeah, so, the former minister of fisheries right correct um so with with these competing bureaucratic actors it's essentially you take your turns type of operations yeah, yeah. so you're so, competing for resources right. budget you're competing for resources, budget, and even legitimacy. Who is the real Coast Guard? Because if you look at the number of international MOUs, for example, Bakamla, because uh, technically they're directly under the president, they've signed qu quite a bit, uh, I think about 12 in the last few years, which makes them sort of uh, the international representation mm -hmm. of our Coast Guard. And this is not without its challenges because the Department of, of Transportation and the Fisheries Ministry all disagree. Uh, the fisheries ministries believe no no it's it's us who has yeah, the coast guard yeah. right so it's essentially if you want to make it simple okay from monday to tuesday from five to six it's this agency yeah. from seven to twelve it's that agency essentially it's like that because there's no single agency that can con uh, yeah. control the waters full on 24 7. Uh, none of them including the navy yeah. there's issues of patrol assets and personnel but also fuel and facilities especially if you talk about the outer islands mm -hmm. in which there isn't always a steady supply of fuel and all that. So mm -hmm. we have a Coast Guard, depends on, on who you talk to. If you talk to the Fisheries Ministry, they would say, we are the Coast Guard. If you talk to Bakamla, no, we are the Coast Guard. So it's not that we don't have one, it's just we have more than one. <laughs> The president established the Maritime Security Agency, I think, in 2014 on paper, mm. but implementing that until now has been a challenge. And I think right now, under, I think, the omnibus law bill, I think there's a portion of that on the Bakamla or the Maritime Security Agency. And that's in Parliament right now as we speak, I think, to help give it more authority and more responsibility. Well, this is where I think promises are long and, and have been said a lot. Masing-masing undang-undang tersebut akan menjadi omnibus law. And I'm saying this because the context in which the omnibus law on maritime security was proposed was the Natunas uh, because of the crisis that we had with China since like mm -hmm. before Christmas. Yeah, I want to get into that uh, yeah, a little bit later. Um, huh? Until January. And 
And one of the the challenges of responding to China's uh, incursions in our waters is that who do we deploy? Because if it's exclusive economic zones, technically it's law enforcement. But then if they use coast guards, do we deploy the navy? But China would say, well, that's not okay because the navy has more than law enforcement capability. So. Because of all this confusion, the omnibus law was proposed. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this was the proposal from the coordinating minister for legal, political, and security affairs. Okay, so, so this is what will come. From the government side. Yeah. Right, from the government side as a way to address this. But it's a promise because, uh, one, uh, Jokowi has other omnibuses law, omnibus laws that are more of a priority. This mm-hmm, is the investment mm-hmm. omnibus. This is labor. The, the labor and all that. So because we've never done anything like an omnibus law before, I would say that the labor and investment would be much more of a priority. So we'll see if we can pass the pilot project of actually passing this first omnibus law on labor, for example, or, or, or employment then we might see a model in which we can actually push through a similar omnibus law for maritime security. The Navy has their own rules. The Ministry of Transportation has their own rules. The Ministry of Maritime, they have their own rules. The military has their own rules. Immigration has their own rules. If it involves maritime, there are many regulations. We hope to simplify this. Coordinating Minister of Political, Legal and Security Affairs, Mahfoud MD. The idea of the omnibus uh, law and maritime security is to essentially synergize or what they call harmonize those existing competing yep. uh, laws I mentioned earlier about how different agencies have different authorities. In a extreme ideal best case scenario, at least for Pakamla's sake, is that every other agencies with the assets and authority over EEZ, for example, should be merged into Pakamla's assets and authority. So Pakamla should be the primary single Coast Guard with the Navy occasionally providing backup as and when as necessary. But I think that's a pretty high bar. There's going to be pushbacks from the fisheries minister and all that. Last I heard from Paul Hukam, this was maybe in mid-January, they said that the earliest they can have a first draft of their version of an omnibus law and maritime security is probably around May or June because um, it requires time to look at dozens of laws and regulations and all that. So this is why I'm not convinced that it's going to be passed this year when you have other priorities, I think, uh, to be passed. Because once you have a first draft, you got to have interagency meetings, you got to have a first reading with parliament and all that. So I think it's, it's in the best case scenario, you'll have something of a hearing maybe sometime next year. Mm-hmm. I, and even then, I'm not so sure, because if you look at the actual list of legislative priorities, the maritime security law was not actually listed as omnibus. It is perceived as such because of that promise during the whole Natuna standoff, but it's not really yet. And that whole standoff uh, happened just really as the, as the House session began for mm-hmm. you know for 2020 mm-hmm. so the timing i think maybe had something to do with it as well yeah. a key pillar of president joko widodo administration's grand national development plan is the CETOL program which will serve as the backbone of his vision of indonesia as a global maritime hub joko's grand plan another part of the Indonesia's gmf i think was creating sort of a CETOL toll lane creating connectivity between uh, main islands and outer islands in an effort to stimulate the economy and also uh, improve the exchange of goods and services to these remote islands. But that has also fallen far short from expectations, has it? 
Yeah, I think uh, on the economic connectivity within Indonesia, I think there's improvements obviously in some parts in terms of their management and their ability to get goods out of parts quicker and, and more efficient and all that. But in terms of actually developing new parts and new capabilities across mm-hmm. Indonesia, which is the essence of, of that uh, a maritime highway, if you will, uh, I think that's Maybe if you believe the government's claim, it's roughly about 60 to 70 percent. But I think in actuality, when you ask businesses, I think they would say, yes, it's better, but it's not fundamentally better to the point of making businesses much more quicker and and, and cheaper to transport goods from port to port across Indonesia. Uh, and I think this is where uh, Jokowi's frustration with the bureaucracy, I think, is starting uh, to show. Uh, if you remember at the beginning of, of his term, he wanted to cut the, the inefficiency at the bureaucratic level uh, by cutting, uh, I think, two echelons out yeah, of yeah. Uh, the top leadership. But, you know, we've been talking about bureaucratic reform since forever uh, because it, it matters for a lot of things, uh, not just in terms of the maritime highway, but competitiveness, ease of doing business and all that. And I think... To be honest, uh, yes, it has improved, but I wouldn't call it a complete success yet, especially when it comes to uh, port safety and and port development. I think that's still a ways off right now. And then moving forward, Jokowi starts his second term, inaugurated in October last year. Yang sangat kompetitif. Kita harus terus mengembangkan cara-cara baru, nilai-nilai baru. Jangan sampai In his inauguration speech, one thing was very lacking was any mention of of maritime. Uh, so it seems that this GMF, this Global Maritime Fulcrum, is basically on the back burner. He said uh, in his inauguration speech instead talked about human capital, economic transformation, things like that. What's behind this change in stance? Uh, before in 2014, he was all about maritime, at least in his first you know year or so, and then now his second term, basically no mention of it. Well, I think he he realizes that having big visions are sort of pointless in Indonesia if you don't change the bureaucracy and fix the infrastructure. Um, so I think it, it makes sense that from his point of view, let the vision of, of the maritime Volcom be in the background, maybe even in a very Javanese way, the, the philosophy, if you will, but when it comes to trying to get policy priorities straight and, and doing business on a day-to-day basis, I think he feels he needs to put more, more emphasis on fixing the bureaucracy, boosting investment and, and infrastructure and making sure that he's preparing for the human capital side of things. So in his mind, the big agenda of, of the first term was infrastructure. The big agenda on the second term is human capital development. Mm-hmm. And everything else should be uh, reoriented towards supporting that big vision. Uh, and you know, if, if you look at it from outside of Indonesia, the GMF was always be seen as a potentially grand strategic geopolitical outlook type of thing, right? Because it has all the language uh, of such a grand strategic outlook that Indonesia is, is the Vulcan between two oceans, that we should be a force in, in the region and not mm-hmm. just be the transit point across the oceans. So the language does give that impression. But I do think Jokowi's unwillingness to grasp the day-to-day details and nuances, foreign policy, defense, and geopolitical issues, I think he doesn't really see the value in keep on promoting mm-hmm. a strongly geopolitical outlook if he cannot fix mm-hmm. the the basic stuff on, on the domestic and the bureaucratic stuff. So I think for me, his second term is more about 
I'm going to finish what I started, which is trying to build the infrastructure, making sure that when I leave, there's something left behind. Because if you ask uh, people on the street, what did SBY left behind in terms of things that you can remember just on top of your head, which is hard to do when you don't look at buildings and monuments and infrastructure and, and all of those. So I think Jokowi's effort at legacy seeking, if you will, is not going to be on the maritime volcrum and, and geopolitical stuff. It's going to be on the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff of, of infrastructure and, and investment. Yeah, there was some criticism of, you know, Joko, we just dropped this, you know, maritime policy, but in a way, maybe it is a good thing knowing it can't be accomplished, focus on the steps before that, and then maybe get that, and then, you know, a future leader could work on that. So maybe it's a good thing that he, he dropped it, knowing it can't be accomplished anyway, at least in this next five years. Well, this is the thing with uh, with Indonesian um, uh, politics and bureaucracy. If you drop it, people don't remember. If people don't remember, people don't care. So uh, one of the reasons why it seems shocking that Indonesia, as the largest archipelago state in the world, actually tries to come back to its root only in 2014. But in fact, if you look at the actual policies uh, from Megawati to SBY, they did create some maritime policies. They established the maritime fisheries ministries. They had created a maritime um, a council. So there were a maritime policies. Uh, it's not like there was no maritime policies whatsoever. There were maritime policies, but precisely because we don't remember, because there was no vision, there was no yeah. grand narrative yeah, yeah. that was sold to the public and, and became the overarching drive and energy across the bureaucracy, people simply forget. So it's it's fascinating to me that you had that narrative, you had that formula that would be a lot more remembered than your your previous presidents could yeah, ever do. Who actually were doing right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's actually it's um, it's fascinating that it's dropped from the narrative. So if people will remember Jokowi's first term as essentially about maritime, um, if it dies now in the second term. I don't think people will remember anymore. And to be fair, uh, you're right that it's good that Jokowi focuses on the basic stuff. But my worry is that the focus on the basic stuff provides this insular worldview and very narrow that everything else is subservient to that goal. Of course, you know, being somebody in in government means you don't have one priority. You have 50 different mm-hmm, other mm-hmm. things you have to accomplish. And, and we get it, the dilemma of governing a country as big as Indonesia, as, as diverse as Indonesia, cannot be just about uh, 50 different things. It could be 15,000, right? Um, yeah, all at the same time. Right, yeah. but I think Chokowi's unwillingness to listen and to be engaged daily on the other stuff that he doesn't care about, I think uh, has hurt him uh, from time to time, uh, whether with the electorate or, or within the bureaucracy itself. So I think Jokowi's obsession on, on a few narrow things is acceptable and completely understandable. But if that's all there is to it, then it's not sufficient. Interesting. Now, we are at the peak of the demographic bonus, where the productive age is far more than the non-productive population. This is a major challenge. President Widodo. And one of the focuses or priorities that you mentioned was improving human capital. I think that's a major concern for Indonesia as it's a very young demographic. You'll have a demographic bonus coming in several years from now, already starting maybe. And I think the concern is where will the uh, workforce be at that time and will there be jobs? At the same time, manufacturing in Indonesia hasn't really taken off. 
Also at the same time, you have uh, automation, innovation, and more efficiencies coming. So I think that's a major concern where uh, it's coming soon and you know, a lot of this workforce is gonna be very young and very big uh, and you need to you know, have them doing something. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think a key part of, of the problem facing that potential demographic shift down the line is the fact that the economy and, and the political side and, and the social side is all very much Java-centric. And I think Jokowi had the right idea when he wants to de-Javanize economic development and all that, and make sure we also develop uh, Borneo and, 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 and the rest of, of the country beyond Java. But the problem isn't necessarily in the intent or the idea behind the vision, but this how you get it. If you rush a lot of the key vision, then you miss out on things like the bureaucracy, like uh, unintended consequences that may uh, cause conflict, for example. Uh, you know, just the same thing with trying to move the capital uh, uh, to East Kalimantan. The idea makes sense, intuitively speaking. Yeah, Jakarta is sinking, it makes sense. But is the solution really moving the capital there? Is the solution not improving governance in Jakarta? There are so many things that I, I wish could have been discussed a little bit more, uh, especially with the public and not just within the halls of the bureaucracy. So I think uh, like in all matters, I think the vision that Jokowi has in mind is perfectly apt uh, given Indonesia's situation and trajectory, but how he implements that vision, I think is where we'll see a lot of challenges. You just mentioned the new capital. Um, Jokowi announced last year that uh, the new capital would be located in is it uh, Eastern uh, Kalimantan? It's in between Eastern and, and the South, yeah. And it would you know, change the center of gravity from, from Java to Kalimantan. What does that really mean symbolically? And what does it mean for Indonesian maritime security, even for the ethnic dynamic in Indonesia? Well, there is a couple of different dimensions uh, to that um, shift, right? From a military standpoint, Indonesia, for the first time, would not have a military center of gravity in Java, uh, which is going to be in Kalimantan, because the shift of the capital would be followed by the creation of new military units and commands and uh, naval bases and, and air force bases across Kalimantan, uh, not to mention the deployment of potentially simple missile defense and all that, because we have a border uh, with Malaysia and others. So I think. This is un unprecedented. I don't think the Indonesian military itself has prepared all of the details or, or even the, the concept of how we're going to create a new center of gravity in Kalimantan. Were they even consulted at the time? Oh, they were. Uh, they were consulted. Uh, they drafted a brief proposal of what would happen and what is required. If it's true that they have to be in Kalimantan, they've, they've planned out a few items, you know, what kind of basis do they need? How many people do they need? How much it costs and all that. And the rough estimation before it was announced, there's new revisions after it was announced, but before it was announced, I think the last revision that I saw, the cost like almost $10 billion. This is to bring in new, uh, new fighter jets, uh, new deep ports, a uh, new special army command for the new capital and all that and shifting between 15 to 25,000 uh, new troops across, across Kalimantan. Because it's not just the capital area alone that you have to develop, you have to develop uh, the rest of Kalimantan. Uh, so that's about, about 
10 billion dollars more or less which means every plan that we have on the military side to buy new equipment uh to engage in long-term planning will all fall by the wayside because this will yeah reshift every resources that we have to kalimantan and this is not even including we're not really sure the extent to which we've consulted the malaysians the bruneians and even the philippines because we are technically going to be a lot closer to a porous tri-border area a bit up to the north right and it's also placing us i mean the new capital in the heart of a strategic ceiling of communications uh, between the pacific oceans around the Philippines all the way down to the eastern part of Indonesia uh, which is a pretty busy sea lane so um it's not clear to me how far ahead mm-hmm. we've we've thought about about all of this on the economic side i think right now there's a concern from civil society groups that right now a lot of the uh land and the forests around the area have already been bought or being controlled by key conglomerates which means a lot of this could be just a big payout for them before Jokowi ends his term but then we're not really sure how it's going to be built mm-hmm. and the timeline to be honest is extremely quick because now you have to move the bureaucracy unreasonable yeah. uh i cannot imagine uh moving everything by 2024 i think if we're really really extremely quick we'll be lucky if we have a few buildings up and running by 2024 and this is not even talking about the tons of problems that will come when you don't have the funding for it you have to rely on public private partnership when you rely on public private partnership you have to open it up to foreign investment how sure are we that we want to let the chinese build our buildings for the government the east timorese seems to be okay with building its uh, its ministry of defense from the chinese but i'm not sure that's the way yeah, we, yeah. to go um, i haven't heard anyone talk about that yet interesting yeah so it's it's Again, the big vision makes perfect sense, but I just don't think a lot of the nitty-gritty details have been worked mm-hmm. out and discussed in detail. From a military point of view, I know that the the reason for moving the capital is one is Jakarta's overcrowded, flood-prone, um many other things, but from a maritime or military perspective, does it make sense or is it better to have the headquarters and main bases in Java? Well, I think when it comes to the, the Navy, uh, because we're talking about the Navy here and not necessarily a maritime law enforcement, uh because maritime law enforcement, I think it would make sense to have a lot of the assets and the facilities around the outer islands part across Indonesia and not just centralized within one or two commands, which is a different way of operating when you're the Navy. With the Navy, it depends on on what kind of assets you want because certain uh warships or or submarines cannot dock in some ports. You have to create deep sea ports and all that. Mm-hmm. And the only deep sea port that we're now using for the Navy is actually in in Sulawesi. Um so it's still within distance uh to the capital, but it's not that close either. So geographically speaking, it shouldn't matter much on the maritime side if we move the center of gravity from Java to Kalimantan in that I think the idea is to allow to control the sea lanes uh on the north and the south uh between uh Sulawesi and and Kalimantan. There's a big swath of of water there uh, that requires control from the navy uh and that is something that i think as far as planning goes uh, is about assets uh, rather than uh, 
a command and control. So the naval base could be in Surabaya, that's fine. But the uh, home base of, of some of the most advanced assets have to be a bit closer to the capital. But the problem is we're not at a stage in military technology where it's all about how close you should be to the main political center because we have cyber, uh, we have missile defense and all that, that that requires investment in technology and not more people. But with the military, the solution is to have more people and not more technology. So this is a bit tricky because, as you mentioned earlier, the Army still dominates uh, defense planning. But as far as I can see, I think Prabowo as, as defense minister, I think in his first few months in office, I think he really is uh, trying to reevaluate the uh, military procurement list and priorities and all that. So I think what is important is the army-to-army engagement, I think, with, uh, with Malaysia, uh, with Brunei and the Philippines and improve uh, maritime law enforcement coordination mm-hmm. for the surrounding waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Navy can stay as is, but I think uh, the maritime law enforcement and the army-to-army uh, engagement needs to be increased. Mm-hmm. And so that would mean more uh, cooperation Along the tri-border area with Malaysia and Philippines. Yep, yep, that's that's definitely the case. And uh, the army likes to make the case that they're still worried about the five power defense arrangements. Uh, yeah, you mentioned is, that very yeah, recently. In a yeah, this is this article. is the uh, the arrangement between Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, and, and Singapore and and the UK. It was created under very different circumstances. Uh, this was created in the 60s when Indonesia was seen as an expansionist power because of its challenge uh, against Malaysia's creation. Uh, but I don't think we have developed sufficient engagement with the FPDA as a framework. Uh, and if F- we, FDPDA? FPDA, this is the five power defense arrangements. So if Indonesia doesn't have a regular a consultation and engagement with FPDA, I think it might create a potential acrimony or even distrust uh, somewhere down the line, especially if we will effectively militarize the entire island of Kalimantan within the next five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. You don't want to step on the wrong toes or they feel we're, mm-hmm. we're becoming expansionist again or vice versa, that we are still feeling being, being contained, if you will, by these five power defense arrangements. And nobody wins if you have more hackermony between us and mm-hmm. Malaysia mm-hmm. and Singapore and Australia. So moving the capital isn't just about having new buildings and moving troops and, and, and buying weaponry, but it's about engagement with your neighbors as well. And I'm not sure this is something we've, we've thought through very well. Mm-hmm. And is there any chance Jokowi ends his second term in 2024, uh, under the current law, at least, he's not allowed to run for a third term. Mm. Is there a chance that this whole plan for the capital may not happen? Or could it be canceled after his term? It by depends on, on how far the process goes uh, when he ends, right? Uh, if there is a law passed within the next one or two years directing the government to move the capital, if the National Capital Management Agency is created or about to be created, and then we've sunk in sufficient funds into the process, at least the land is clear and maybe one or two buildings, I think it's gonna continue, but it's probably gonna continue along the lines like South Korea did, which is slow and gradual and not all in one sw- mm-hmm. uh, swoop. I think that's a best case scenario. Uh, so the best case scenario for me isn't the entire capital literally moving by the end of 2024. But the initial groundwork uh, and the cost and the bureaucracy and the legal uh, basis are all set up at the end of 2024 so that 
if the next government decides to slow down that progress for whatever mm-hmm. reason, at least it's there. Yeah. But I'm not uh, entirely optimistic right now, just because I think uh, the priorities of the of the current government is essentially how do we get more money for our budget. And that's a main priority. And this is why you see a push from the tax ministry. You see like in Christmas, they start doing raids on expensive cars across Jakarta, right? But there's a genuine need, I think, within the government. How do we get more money, period? And I think this is where the priorities for the omnibus law on, on employment, on investment is being pushed ahead. So if you push these laws ahead and your, your drive to increase the tax base and all that is technically the first business of the day, then what happens with all the political wrangling and negotiations over the new bill for the capital? Mm-hmm. I'm not super optimistic. And if the last term of, of DPR is any indication, uh-huh. yeah. it's gonna be extremely slow. Yeah, very low performance. Yeah. Yeah. Or they make it worse and they pass things the last two weeks before their term yeah. is up. Yeah. I hope that doesn't happen, uh, but I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm very pessimistic when it comes to the pair. Yeah, to move the capital, you know, many people think the president decided so it's gonna happen, but there's a whole list of regulations, laws that have to be changed. Uh, there's even laws in, in the special autonomy region of Jakarta. Mm. So there's a whole a whole list of things that need to be done even to even start thinking about it. So I think a lot of people forget that. China Coast Guard, China Coast Guard, 5302. This is Indonesian Coast Guard calling you over. You are in Indonesian waters. No, no, no. I protest my business safe. China Coast Guard, China Coast Guard, Indonesian Coast Guard calling. Uh, this is China Coast Guard, 5302. China has an indisputable sovereignty over the island in South China Sea under adjacent waters and enjoys sovereign rights. I order you, sir. I order you to go away. My, my, fishing, my fishing boat now is... Uh, but I just want to move mm-hmm. to the Natuna Sea. You brought up earlier the um, exclusive economic zone or the EEZ, which is near Riau and reaches very far north into the towards the South China Sea. Uh, in borders, two territorial waters, Malaysia and Vietnam. And, you know, when you look at the so-called nine-dash line, which is a vaguely located demarcation line used by uh, China for their claims of the South China Sea, if you look at the nine dashes, you see sort of one that's missing right at the bottom. It seems like it should be a 10-dash line and the 10th should be right over or covering uh, the Natuna Sea. Indonesia doesn't have any disputes, territorial disputes right now with China, unlike some of its neighbors, but it has had issues with Chinese fishing vessels exploiting fisheries in, in the Natuna Sea and in, in Indonesian waters. In addition to that, you have some large gas deposits, Natuna de Alpha block, for example, in that area. And we see Chinese encroachment into territorial waters of Indonesia. Is there bound to be a territorial dispute sometime between China and Indonesia, or will China just keep pushing the threshold as far as it can, uh, meaning coming into the waters, being escorted, uh, fisheries, fishing boats being escorted by the Chinese Coast Guard. Will they just keep doing that? Or is there a bigger concern coming in the near future? So for me, I'm, I'm of a slightly different view about why and how China is doing things with us on the Natunas. I think the resource element is overblown uh, for a couple of reasons. One, China's pushback against Vietnam or Malaysia or Philippines 
uh, engaging in hydrocarbon resources um, in, in terms of exploiting uh, the hydrocarbon resources makes sense from a dispute standpoint because they actually do have overlapping disputes on, uh, on those areas, unlike with us. But even then, on those areas that they challenge in terms of, uh, of the ability of the other claimants to use those resources, China hasn't exactly been enjoying those resources, right? Um, so yes, are there values uh, to the South China Sea in general in terms of, of hydrocarbon? Absolutely. Fisheries? Absolutely. The same thing with Indonesia. But uh, I do think, unlike with the other claimants, China's challenge and incursions in our waters isn't designed to capture or occupy uh, the hydrocarbon resources themselves or occupy one of the island features around Indonesia's uh, waters. I think the challenge is geostrategic in nature in that it is about its larger claims. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because if you actually look at the resources of the fisheries that China um, stole, and I'm using steel here uh, uh, deliberately because it is Indonesia's exclusive economic rights, um, the amount of resources that China stole. We don't have the exact figures, but as far as I can understand it from the people on the ground, the maritime law enforcement people, the value is actually not that high because around those choppy, difficult waters in the Natunas, uh, they're not high value fishes. They're fisheries that will be used for cattle feed and all that. So it's it's not necessarily high value like clams and expensive fishes that you would get in the Philippines or even Vietnam and Malaysia. So around the slice of that potential overlap, the value is actually not that high. So why does China keep on doing it if, if the value is not that high? Uh, I think it's important because Indonesia remains a non-claimant. And by non-claimant, as in Indonesia does not stake a claim in the disputed parts of the South China Sea. In this particular case, more geographically speaking, it's within the Spratling Islands. So we don't stake a claim. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, there is a potential overlap uh, between Indonesia's EEZ with China's claim. The problem is that we don't know what those claims are. Every time we ask the Chinese, if you say that there is an overlapping rights, can you please tell us where the coordinates are and what are the international legal basis for you to claim those coordinates? We've never given any clear answer. So when we say that there is no dispute, it's because there isn't one in terms of exclusive economic zones. Per UNCLOS, we have one with Vietnam and Malaysia, as you mentioned earlier, but when it comes to the Chinese, they don't have one. So it's like, you try to steal a car and then you claim, well, for a win-win solution, how about we split the deed to the car? Well, no, the deed is under my name and my name is is, is given by UNCLOS, right? So it makes no sense for us to, to, to acknowledge that there's a dispute when you, you stole the car that's legally and rightfully mine and you say the win-win solution is how about we split the deed? <laughs> yeah. That makes no sense. So from that standpoint, there is no, no dispute. Now, uh, whether or not China keeps on encouraging into our waters, we see that as a law enforcement problem. Yes, we will keep on trying to enforce our rights within the EZ. In, in Susi's terms, we would detain and occasionally mm -hmm. uh, blow up the ship. So that part doesn't change the fact that our EZ is our EZ and the sovereign rights uh, as granted per UNCLOS uh, remains ours. Uh, now, the issue is whether or not China can inadvertently get us to acknowledge that they have rights as well. Because from the foreign ministry, that's 
quick, simple, and easy. There is no negotiation. There is no conversation that involves discussions about overlapping maritime rights. China can use 50 different new terms, you know, uh, jurisdiction over relevant waters, uh, uh, historic fishing grounds, and all that. UNCLOS only recognizes historic fishing rights as granted by both countries in dispute. And we recognize those rights with Malaysia and Vietnam as much as Australia recognizes Indonesia's traditional fishing rights in parts of their waters. So historic fishing rights is, is there. But anyway, going back to the point about what's next, the idea is that if we somehow outside of the foreign ministry, uh, whether it's the fisheries minister or some other uh, member of the political elite inadvertently say, oh, yeah, we don't want conflict. We can just discuss things with the Chinese uh, peacefully. That could be seen as implicitly acknowledging that they have a right to begin with. And this is where it's dangerous, because if we inadvertently acknowledges China's rights, that means the only way that is legally possible is if we accept that China can draw a 200 nautical mile line from one of its occupied features or some sort of artificial islands uh, that's part of the dispute at Spratleys. Which means if that happens, the claimants, uh, the other non-Chinese claimants, all of their claims will be undermined and we will effectively become a part of the dispute and China will effectively become a party to our efforts to uh, finalize our maritime delimitation negotiation with Vietnam and Malaysia. So the danger, I think, lies in that inadvertent admission of China's rights. And that's why China is, is engaging in what scholars call salami slicing. They provide incursions, small scale enough that it's not seen as an outright act of aggression or war. But over time, uh, as they build uh, the artificial islands, as they deploy military assets, these small steps, seemingly minor, annoying even, uh, they become a huge accumulated strategic advantage. And when the time happens, and China has time, uh, they've been waiting on this uh, for decades, they're not in a rush. Uh, the other claimants are in a rush, you know, uh, Philippines are in, in the midst mm -hmm. of an energy crisis, so they need to develop uh, the resources. Mm -hmm. um, so if we inadvertently uh, acknowledge their rights, if it's bound to happen somewhere on the line, I think that's the end game for us, if, if we implicitly acknowledge that right. So I think these incursions are meant to test our resolve on a regular basis. So it's not about fisheries it's not about fishing boats it's about making these routine excursions for a bigger a bigger goal the fisheries themselves as such i don't think is the goal i think the fisheries themselves is is merely a tool in their path to eventually get us to implicitly acknowledge that wider claim that's that's interesting because i don't hear i haven't seen uh, or heard many people talking about that but the indonesian government is aware of this uh, the foreign ministry is certainly aware of it. And this is, I think, the bigger problem with Indonesia's response on China is that who's responding? And do we have uh, a collective system in which actors from different agency uh, improve their communication, but also provide options in a centralized manner? We don't have a National Security Council type like the U.S. So when it comes to the maritime stuff, do we go to the coordinating minister for maritime affairs, yeah. which is technically more investment, or do we go to the one that's Paul Hukam, that's more legal and political? Uh, but even then, I think uh, the coordinating ministry is essentially just that. It coordinates. It doesn't have the authority to legally order uh, the other ministers to do X, Y, and Z. That rests within the president. Mm -hmm. So in the absence of a National Security Council under the president, information, policies, and options to deal with China is fragmented. 
which means each bureaucracy has its own idea. The fisheries minister has its own idea. The foreign minister has her own idea. Uh, defense minister has his own idea. So this is what it's tricky because they only get together under some crisis. What happens on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where, as long as our response is not formulated strategically and coherently, our ability to counter China's strategy is is going to be limited and at best not sustainable. Be sure to follow Evan Laksmana's Twitter feed to learn more of his insights and analysis at Evan Laksmana. Executive producer for this episode is me, Sean. Producer is Tanita. Research done by Veronica. Sound engineering by Risky. And visual design by our newest team member, Daniel. Email us your comments and feedback to info at indonesiaindepth.com. You can also follow us on our socials, Twitter, at Indo in Depth, Instagram at Indonesia in Depth, or at our website, IndonesiaIndepth.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.